everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Reading Party Podcast with Megan and Lexi. This episode continues our season looking at modern retellings of the Iliad and the Odyssey, ancient epics known for both brutal violence and instances of sexual assault. This episode is not suitable for under-18s. We hope you have your favourite beverage and snack ready to go, because we've got our teas and are ready to start spilling the tea on our latest ancient story. This week, Lexi and I are finishing off Circe by Madeleine Miller. We look at the changing relationship between Circe and her son, as well as some surprise visitors that come to the island, as well as a poignant but very fitting ending to the story. What tea are you drinking? I have peach and ginger tea. Oh, that sounds so delicious. Very good. Do you have tea today? I had some earlier, but not currently. And my mom, I think, is going to be making a smoothie at some point. So I'm just waiting to profit from that. So anyway, I know we're here to talk about Circe Part 2. Do you want to do your lovely recaps of what we read? Yes. So I, I sped through this last night. I could not sleep. The gods have decided that she's a good place to send their wayward daughters, and she's super thrilled by this, as you can imagine, and ends up essentially saying, I don't want to see you. I don't want to hear you. You can stay here, but if I see or hear you, I'm going to turn you into a rat, a toad, something that the nymphs don't want to be turned into. So we we kind of get this break of her solitude, but it's definitely not a welcome break. And then ships start arriving, just random ships of men turning up. And the first time it happens, it's quite sweet. Like she's happy to see people and to have someone to talk to. And we already know she likes mortals more than she likes the other gods. And then the mortals don't realise she's not mortal and they find out that obviously there's no husband, there's no father, there's no son, there's no brother. It's just a beautiful woman living by herself. So she gets sexually assaulted and then proceeds to turn them all into pigs. So you get where the pig thing comes from, the Odyssey. And the first time she does it, it's obviously revenge and she's taking kind of a ghoulish pleasure in it. But the ships keep coming and and obviously not each episode is described individually because that would take pages and pages and pages but the evolution of her going from the Circe who's happy to see mortals and to have company to and the Circe who like tests these men and sees are they going to be genuine kind lost people who will have some food and then get back on their ship or are they going to be rapists to a woman who well, goddess, who just turns everyone into a pig almost as soon as they set foot on the island is interesting to watch. It's short, but it's very well done. And then, of course, ultimately, we get Odysseus's crew. They turn up. She does the pig thing. And then Odysseus shows up and she falls in love with him, as we know that she does. And the way his character is described is, I think, what we would expect from Odysseus. He's clever and interesting and curious and doesn't try and sugarcoat who he is. He makes it very clear that he's married, but he's not one of the valorous heroes 
right, he's he's not someone who has gone to win a name for himself. He's there because he has to be and he kind of does the dirty work. He promises spies freedom so that they'll tell him all the secrets and then he kills them because he can't leave them alive. They're a liability. So we see the kind of the evolution of his relationship with Cersei and ultimately, obviously, she has to let him go. And what I enjoy about the rest of the book and something that I wasn't prepared for the first time I read it is kind of the aftermath of Odysseus being there because I expected on a first read I expected the story to kind of end with Odysseus leaving because having read the Odyssey that that felt like the natural end for Circe's story and given where we started with the beginning of Circe and her as a child that expectation was very definitely misplaced because the story just it keeps going and you find that she's pregnant by Odysseus deliberately she skips her birth control and is pregnant and has this son and there's a lot of attention to the relationship between Circe and Telegamus who is her child and his anger and fury as a baby which I can definitely relate to because when my baby's angry my lord they just they throw their bodies everywhere they get red in the face they pummel you and it's you just want them to stop and in the midst of all of this chaos of having a child by yourself is a very real, very ever-present terror that Cersei has that something will happen to this boy because he is mortal. He can be hurt. He can die. And she starts seeing danger literally everywhere. And it kind of goes on for a few pages describing day-to-day life and, and how she's struggling. And then she suddenly realizes the reason there's danger everywhere is because that it like it, she's not imagining it, right? It's not just a mother's paranoia of oh my baby's going to get eaten by a wolf there is danger everywhere because there's a goddess out for him there is a deity somewhere out there trying to hurt this kid and she goes whoever you are come forward stop lurking in the shadows and it's Athena because of course it's Athena this is a book about Odysseus it wouldn't really be anyone else and she wants to kill Telegamus and she won't say why she gets very angry at Circe for even asking the question and tells her she'll regret essentially not giving her her son which is interesting and you're like hmm this is a book based on greek myth what's going to happen here i wonder it's not going to be a pleasant thing at all and so the rest of the book is cersei's relationship with her son how that evolves and develops and then him going off in a couple of different ways the first time he goes off to ithaca to find his father and cersei is very much against this because Athena's out there and she's cast a spell over the island to keep him safe and to stop any of the Olympians getting on. She obviously can't extend that spell to follow Telegamus wherever he goes. So she's like, she will kill you. And he insists on going. So she wades into the ocean in a really, really fantastic scene to find the oldest primordial ocean deity and take, he's a stingray and take his barbed tail because it will kill anything, god, goddess, mortal, whatever. And she gets it. And and it's really cool how that happens. And and we can probably talk about that later. But she gets it. She takes it back. She gives it to to Telegamus on the end of a spear as a weapon. If you see Athena, you use this. She will kill you. Do not hesitate. And she kind of watches her son go off and then spends some time daydreaming about his future. And maybe he'll kind of travel back and forth between her and between Ithaca. And it'll be great. And Odysseus will be so glad to know his son. and, And then he comes back too early. And he comes back too early because... In the, in the vein of Greek tragedy everywhere, he's accidentally caused the death of his father. So 
that's what Athena was trying to prevent. And it turns out he's brought Telemachus, his half-brother, and Penelope back with him, which is really just what any woman wants, is the wife of her former lover and his son just turning up on her doorstep completely unexpectedly. So that was really interesting, seeing the interpersonal relationships between them and seeing her anticipate that they're both going to try and kill her son because you killed someone's father, they're going to try and kill you. That's kind of how it goes. And again, she completely misreads the situation. You find out that Odysseus essentially, can we say went mad? Kind of went mad. Didn't really ever come home properly from the war. We, he, he killed all the suitors. He ordered the deaths of all of the serving women. And it just sounds like he just kills, kept killing people and, and finding lost glory, maybe, rather than settling into the calm life that he was kind of pining for when he was with Circe. So Telemachus has no antagonism towards Telegonus because he didn't have a good relationship with his father. Odysseus didn't like him, didn't understand him, didn't want him as his son. So the boys kind of form this friendship, sibling relationship thing. It's nice. And Penelope ends up being a friend. She starts out being a little prickly and not super thrilled that her husband was so fond of this witch, but they end up being friends. And the very long upshot is that Athena comes to the island, offers Telemachus a kingdom in the West and, and a dynasty and a lineage and all this good stuff. And he's like, thank you, but no, can't possibly accept. So she takes Telegamus instead and Circe's pissed, but does ultimately do the spreading your wings motherhood thing and, and lets him go. And she then forces her father to end her exile which I don't want to stay here anymore. My son is gone. You can't just keep keeping me here forever and ever. And if you do, I will tell Zeus that when I was a child, I gave Prometheus kindness and he's going to be super pissed with you. So yeah, you should just let me go. So she goes and Tele Telemachus comes with her and they have some adventures and kill Scylla finally. So she's no longer threatening everybody. And they go and they find the flower that Circe used right in the beginning to turn her kind of boyfriend into a god. She finds the flower, she goes back to the island where Penelope still is, and the last couple of, of pages is almost like a prophecy, like a foretelling of what she imagines her future to be after she takes this flower, which is a transformative, turns you into your own true self. And what she's imagining is that she turns mortal. And she has a mortal life with Telemachus and they have children and she goes and she sees her son and lives out her days with her husband as a mortal. It gives me shivers even just talking about it because it's everything that she has ever wanted, everything she has ever hoped for. And you don't know for certain that she gets it because the story ends with that premonition daydream thing. You don't get to see her take the flower. You don't get to see what happens. But I hope I hope really, really strongly that that was, that was some vision of the future and not just a wishful thinking type thing. But it's, it's, I found it, the ending to be a really nice, gentle fairy tale, almost. The rest of the book is so, she's so strong and she's forced to be so strong and so isolated because of who she is. And to see the last few, like the last couple of chapters, 
is her finding family and finding warmth and affection and love and community in literally the last place I think anyone would ever expect her to find it. It felt really fitting. It felt very restful for a character who fights a lot for most of the book. Yeah. So that was not quite as brisk as my usual summaries are, but there are a lot of little details in there that I really enjoy. Well, this one deserved it. Nobody come after me for this statement, but I know it's an adaptation, sort of trying to cover the Odyssey story, and we do get our Odysseus in it. I actually didn't really care about. I was just like, okay, cool, cool. Odysseus is here, blah, blah, blah. I almost felt a bit apathetic. I was just kind of like, okay, I don't care. What's next? So I actually really connected with the part after Odysseus leaves, like really after he's out of the narrative. And I was sitting here trying to think about why that is because usually I like the Odyssey and usually I'm very invested in when we see Odysseus right because he's our our famous trickster our sort of lovable stupid ass man who does stupid things but we love him anyway he's like a problematic fave it must be something with the way that these books are written right because Song of Achilles was different it was too different. I can't really make a comparison there, but she focuses a lot of detail on the smaller, seemingly insignificant stuff. And I feel like she passes over a lot of the big stuff and kind of like acknowledges that it's happening. It happens. It's there. But like there's so much more to it, um, more to the story or the narrative. So I, yeah, I don't know. Like I was kind of expecting this book to sort of end with Odysseus leaving as well. I shouldn't have done that either because that was a giant mistake considering coming into the book I was also like oh so it's going to start with her being a witch already on Aiea and, and he's just going to come and and this is going to be a real short book and then I was like mm, no 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 that was a mistake so I like it we get prequel and sequel if I dare to call it Though there were a lot of twists. I mean, the the plot twist of the moment, I suppose, was her falling in love with Telemachus. I was like, what? I don't normally research these because I rarely have the time. But a lot of that is actually drawn from mythology that survives in like fragments and summaries. So there was a sequel to the Odyssey of Britain called The Telegamy about the sons of Odysseus after Odysseus leaves Circe. And Circe being pregnant and ultimately marrying Telemachus and also Telemachus going to Ithaca and he goes as a pirate in the myth and does raid the island I think and again I, I haven't read it I've read a, a summary but he goes and he raids the island and does yes kill Odysseus with a, a stingray tipped spear but then Telemachus comes in and marries Circe but I thought that the way it was written Obviously, the events are drawn from Greek myth, but the way it was written prioritizes personal relationships so heavily. It was a really beautiful read. I do like the way that just the writing style, right? Because you're using material that's so well known, so it'd be easy to kind of have just a, like, oh no, just another adaptation where I get the same story told in the same style. This is not that. Like, this is not that book. If you want to go read something that's close to the original, you just, you can choose anything else. But no, this was like, 
much more emotional. Odysseus almost felt like a plot device. I really like how he's not the main focus. Did you get the sense that, like, when we were reading Song of Achilles, that Achilles was almost just a plot device, too? Yeah, kind of. Like, they're useful pushing the narrative forward but obviously with Circe the book isn't about Odysseus but with Song of Achilles the, the book wasn't really about Achilles it was about everyone around him and how they were impacted by him yeah and I don't know if it's easier to spot the differences just because they're stylistically similar but also just the the story and the characters are very different it's already a bold choice making a story about Achilles be told from the perspective of Patroclus, that's already a, a very strong choice. Even though they have this relationship and it'd be so easy to have them take very active roles. No, 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 it felt very passive. And so this book also felt very passive. Like, again, she was controlling the narrative and anything that happened or anyone, anyone who came, it was like happenstance. Like, oh, they just happened to come and happened to do the thing. It, and I don't want to say, like, it would have happened without her, because they wouldn't have, but, like, it's written in a way where it feels like she's still controlling it. Which is weird, because the entire narrative stresses that women have no power. Um, that's a really hard line to to walk as an author so i'm always just phenomenally impressed i'm like how does she write it she's writing literally about a woman who does not have autonomy over her life and yet the major players who are defining your life it doesn't feel like they're taking over that's very impressive as for an author i'll leave it there and be very complimentary but i i did want to circle back to yeah how she gets the tail right for the spear dude that's impressive i can't remember now but i remember when when i was listening to this part of the story through the audiobook i got like the scenes of a similar kind of cool thing in my head and so i was like transposing them onto each other and being like oh oh i've seen this before but it, it's so effective. Oh, oh, I'm so sad that I don't remember what, what it was. It'll come back to me. The more we talk about it, it'll just, things filter back to me eventually. Because I'm like, the, the whole idea of, like, you need to prove yourself. You need to prove, you know, your, your commitment. That you're willing to sacrifice something. And then most people quail. Right, because the, the, God, the God says, you can, you can take my, t my tail, but you have to let me stingy with it first you've got to feel the pain before you get it and you find out that what her brother has been there before someone else i can't remember who and he gave them the same offer and they both yeah because you can no. quail under the pressure and she mm -hmm. and you don't want to feel that it's it's not worth it but because she is there out of love out of wanting to protect her son she kind of and she there are a couple of points where she nearly backs down but she goes through and says okay yes we can do this here's like here's my hand and goes to touch it and like touches nothing and stingray god says essentially congratulations you've passed my test the fact that you were willing to do it is enough you don't actually have to you do have to cut my tail off which is another point at which she almost almost goes and he he says you you would have killed me for this but you won't take it from me 
willing with me being willing which I thought was was interesting and I do I do see that the difficulty there I do think there's a difference in taking something when you've got kind of anger and violence mutual anger and violence and taking something that you know will cause someone else harm when they're giving it to you to you willingly but she does she takes it and and he says just return it to the sea when you're done and and it'll find its way back but the way it's described when she goes out into the water she just walks walks into the ocean and keeps going until she finds him and she's clearly several thousand feet meters under sea under like sea level and it's dark and she describes how like oppressive it is and there is literally nothing living there except this god but it's interesting because it still falls the 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 idea of you need to be willing to sacrifice and then the kind of like test right of the oh you've proven yourself worthy because you were willing to go through with the thing which you didn't we've seen that before in mythology right so i guess that wasn't so much of a like, plot twist or a, or a surprise but it was interesting because we see this in so many different forms both positively and negatively this is not the example i was thinking of when i listened to it but it just popped into my head now as we're talking about it i will still try to find that positive example somewhere in my brain but the other thing that just popped in was a more negative example but it's similar maybe it's because i've been literally chewing my way through an, a giant book on norse mythology but this the parallels with and for those who are not the most up on their norse mythology luckily i literally in deep in the weeds but you know you have the narrative of the all father odin fated to fight the giant wolf fenrir during ragnarok and which is kind of like the the big war of the gods at the end of the the mythological cycle and so he tries to prolong this fate as and, and delay it because the, he is fated to die by the hand of the wolf at the end so most of like the mythic present of norse mythology is just stories of odin trying to prolong his his life and, and outrun fate which he eventually can't but he still tries anyway which lol we've heard that in mythology before but when the wolf Frenrir is still young odin has the dwarves make like an indestructible rope and he wants to bind the wolf so that he cannot escape his watchful eye and 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 try to sort of stave off fate so he goes to the wolf and says will you let me tie this on you you know you've been raised here in asgard you know will you let me put this rope on you and he says no i don't trust you at all and so the only way that he can do this is he has to ask Tyr, the god of justice, and says, well, you've raised this wolf. He trusts you. You make, you find a way. So the wolf says, okay, I will let you bind me, but you must offer me a show of faith. You must be willing to place your hand in my mouth. So that way I can either 
bite off and take the hand if you are disingenuous, or if you truly mean me no harm, as you say, you will be fine. None of the gods want to do that. They're all like, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm out. I, I refuse. I will not do this. Being the peacemaker, Tiar is like, I got you. I'm Lord of Justice. We're good. I can do this. All right, Odin, keep your word. So he's the only one brave enough. So he places his hand in Venedata's mouth. And uh, of course, Odin being, well, Odin, he puts the rope on and the minute it's bound around him and he pulls it tight, it causes the wolf pain. You know, it's inflicting damage because these bindings are coming on. And um, so then obviously Fenrir is like, oh my gosh. So he bites down on, on Tyr's hand, right? So now it's trapped. And poor Tyr is like screaming. He's like, no, no, no. He's like, really? He's like, stop this, stop this. Uh, like this hurts, blah, blah, blah. You need to stop. And then Odin being a massive dick is like, <laughs> you thought no. And so that is then how Tyr loses his entire hand from the elbow down because the wolf bites it off because he said you were completely disingenuous. And Odin only caring about himself because all the gods, especially Norse mythology, are very selfish. He was like, uh, yeah, no, I just wanted you bound because, well, yeah. I think about that a lot and I'm like, oh, well, that's one where it didn't go well. But it, it's this mythological concept, right, of, of trust. Yeah, and I think maybe the one that you may have been thinking of is the binding of Isaac in the Hebrew Bible, where Abraham is told to sacrifice his oldest son and he takes him up to the altar and he ties him and like has the knife out and ready. And Yahweh says, okay, you're good. Just the fact that you were willing to do it shows That was not what I was thinking of, but now that you say it, yes, it's a completely valid. So it shows up everywhere. It can show up in biblical material. So very different, you know, it shows up, the concept shows up in Norse mythology. I'm actually positive that if we were to sit here and analyze different mythologies from different cultures around the world, we'd find the exact same type of example. I'm not as well versed in other types to be able to sit here and pull one out of my hat. Um, but it's like a universal thing, this idea of, of trust, which... It doesn't surprise me because there's also like universal themes we still have today, right? That descended from sort of ancient concepts or mythological ones that are very present in our culture. Uh, it's interesting. One of those things I was noticing both here in this book, in a lot of the other books we've read, and just as a theme within mythology that is then also transferred into our current culture life whatever we want to call it cultural milieu perfect thank you is is the idea of guest friendship right friendship but also like xenophobic attitudes of 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 the expulsion of the stranger and maybe it's because i've been sitting here trying to go back and edit one of my papers that i wrote for my migration class is you know in in grad school last year but it's so true because you have guest friendship so you see it here where when the when all the sailors start to come to her island she's like i will welcome you as guests and i will treat you respectfully because 
that is what one does and and in mythology it's it's the same concept you have especially in ancient greece right you had the concept of philoxenia guest friendship which it's interesting because when you when you analyze the, the meaning of the word itself and and you look at the mythological meanings it doesn't actually mean like guest friendship and that you want to receive someone because you 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 are so gung-ho and positive about receiving them when you get into the actual meaning of philoxenia it's more like there's a theory that it descends from the fear like you welcome them because you're fearful that the stranger at your door could be a god in disguise and if you were to treat them badly you would bring ill will upon yourself and so basically the theory just goes that rather than yes i welcome you it's more i'm afraid to turn you away so i actually have to treat you nicely or else it'll reflect badly on me and so i see this theme repeated in mythology right where i'm like yeah but are you welcoming them because you actually want them or are you welcoming them because you're so terribly afraid that it's going to be a god in disguise who's going to pop up and say ha i've caught you you were mean to me you're cursed so you know that that kind of was rolling around in, in my mind as I was seeing this and I was like okay yeah I was like okay so she's been exiled so she's lonely so her philoxenia of welcoming the sailors I'm like okay it makes sense it's probably you know she's like actually lonely but then it changes because then she does get brutally attacked which I hate, I hate how every story has some brutal attack in Greek mythology. I can't say that I wasn't expecting it, but it does suck. So, okay, she gets attacked. But then you see, it's like a, a switch. It flips. And then it's arguably goes right from the best parts of Philoxenia to, well, xenophobia, which is more just fear of the well if you translate it literally it's fear of the foreigner but the concept is fear of the other which you see and these concepts we play we play around with them in so many different ways it's so cool because it, it attaches to some larger theories that it would we'd be here for four hours if i really wanted to sit down but i love how we tie so many concepts that started through myth and then we see it brought forward and vice versa right because this concept of trusting somebody just on good faith and seeing if they're willing to do it so then without doing it you're rewarded you know that starts out biblically mm -hmm. mythologically and we see modern iterations of the you do something for me i do something for you we see that here in modern times so i find it's really cool how you can see what we would consider almost a modern concept and take that back into the mythology mm -hmm. and it still works and it still pops up yeah. and i get very excited about it and i don't know why but it's very very exciting because maybe that's my whole obsession with classical reception and seeing ancient and modern woven together but i digress i don't know i don't know Do, am i i don't know what do you think i think you're entirely right i think it's really really interesting and while you were talking something that occurred to me is that it's kind of a theme through the whole book that the people she trusts, the people she looks to and expects and hopes to get support from, mostly her family, 
at every single turn betray that trust. Her dad doesn't want her. Her mother is a narcissistic nymph. Her brother, she thinks, is is her friend, and then he abandons her, and you find out that actually he was using her. Her sister uses her. Everyone in her life uses her to some degree, even when she tries to kind of break out of that cycle and give them her trust. And then the mortals do exactly the same thing, and Medea does it when she comes to her door, and then she goes out to attack this god and to take a part of his body anticipating that it will be violent and that it will be non-consensual and even though she's gone out with this intent she's met with like a gentle calmness almost and even though he says I'm going to sting you before you're allowed to take it it's like there's a trust there that is not present in almost any of the other relationships that that she has. And even though it's a very short encounter given the length of the book and, and when you consider like how long she knew her brother for and, and all that kind of thing, it's it feels like a more significantly connected moments maybe than than a lot of the other things that she's had to live through. If everyone, like her family have regularly laughed at her for being trusting, for being weak, for being like kind and hopeful. And in this instance, it's one of the few instances of the book, but in this instance, being trusting and being kind and being hopeful and doing what she's asked rather than just blindly attacking actually works out substantially in her favor. And it's finally shown as the strength that I think readers know it to be right this idea that kindness is a weakness is is not necessarily something i think modern readers are going into this book with so you're you're reading through and everyone's laughing at her for being for being kind and for being honest and for being vulnerable and finally finally it pays off and she's seen as the strong person that she knows herself to be and that we know her to be and it's it's kind of a moment of vindication i thought I would totally agree. I would totally agree. Well, without getting too tropey, I mean, it really is kind of the everyone underestimates you, ultimate underdog, because everyone mistreats you. And then she's just like, booyah, suckers. I have tricked gods and gotten away with stuff and then found a way to get my happy ending. And it's the happy ending that she has been looking for rather than the happy ending I think that any of her her divine family would understand, right? Because ultimately she's going to right. die if she goes this this mortal route and everything that that they stand for is like the antithesis of that. Right, but it's almost to show that like she had what normal mortals would dream of, right? But it's like when mortals think of it they don't think of how bad it could get like what if you are shunned what if you are hated as a fellow mortal forever and and these are the people that you have to kind of either play nice with or be okay with being alone because the thing is it's like if everyone else is mortal and you don't like the immortals around you well then you're screwed because they're who's going to be there right through the rest of eternity so it's almost like this poetic be careful what you wish for but like in reverse 
where yeah i don't know it's like built around the idea that you should really think about what's almost like what's important right because she thought her family was important she thought finding love with an immortal and making him live forever and and then having the little dreamsy right of we're gonna be together forever until the stars go blue and you know blah 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 and it was like no that was a disaster yeah no it was it was like can I call it like a reverse redemption arc? I think so. Because she's been working her whole life to be the deity that she's supposed to be. And then she's like, why am I doing this? I'm not supposed to be divine. I'm supposed to be mortal. Yes. And it fits her so much better. D dare I say female empowerment? I mean, because she gets bad shit happening to her. So I'm kind of like, I don't know if I can really call it empowerment when she's so unempowered. Oh dear. What is it? Is it unempowered? Disempowered? I think there is there is a level of empowerment if we want if we want to call it that, because she's rejecting literally everything, like explicitly rejecting to her father's face everything that she has been raised to believe in, everything that he expects her to be. When she calls him and says, like, release me from my exile. And he says it at the end, right before he leaves, you've always been the worst of my children. And her response is, well, stop counting me among your children. That's absolutely fine. And he's like speechless. I, I think that is a substantial development from when where we started and where she is through most of the story of desperately wanting the approval of her divine family and not understanding why they're so cruel. See, that's it. Okay, question though. At the end of the whole thing, do you feel like just is it relief because i don't know i got to the end and i was kind of like i don't know what this is that i'm feeling i can't really say it's relief i'm curious though what what did you feel at the end of all this i do think relief that for so for a lot of the second half you're waiting for the shoe yes. to drop because you know Athena's out there, you know she wants the death of Cersei's son. And C Cersei says at several points, her son is the thing that can be used against her. There's nothing else. They can't hurt her, she's immortal. They can't exile her more than she's currently exiled. They can kill her son. And then she will have to live with that for eternity. So the fact that there is a resolution to that tension before, like quite a bit before the end of the book it's means that you're not ending with this kind of hanging over you there is no other shoe to drop he's not going to die he's fine he's gone he's supposedly founding a dynasty but you find out at the end that he's not founding a dynasty because he is interested in the wrong gender with which to found a dynasty and you see her happy finally and like safe because if she's mortal now she has no power to wield against the gods she's no threat to them anymore really the worst thing she's done is stain her father's reputation and like he's not going to go and kill her for that she's insignificant she's not worth the attention be because she's mortal now so you 
even though it's a prophecy or a daydream at the end, whatever you want to call it, I think there is definitely a relief there because she's safe. Weirdly, safer, I think, as a mortal than she was as a goddess because she's she's so unimportant now. But did you feel sad almost or just like relief and safe? I didn't feel sad. I felt happy for her because this was so clearly the life that she had been wanting. Maybe even without knowing. But her description of growing old and her daughters and just living with the people that she loves as opposed to this endless immortality alone. I think was poignant. It was definitely poignant. And I can see how it would be melancholy, but it just felt right. It felt good. I don't know why I felt, I did feel sad, like so sad, only because it was more like a sadness that to find happiness, she had to reject her family and all these other really important things. So like, yes, personally for her, she got what she wanted. So yay. I just like couldn't escape this feeling that like it was bitter. It was bittersweet. I'll put it that way. Not pure sadness. It was bittersweet. Yeah, and I think I, I absolutely see that. And I think that it would have been nice to have some kind of acknowledgement on Helia's part that, that she'd been mistreated, that they were wrong in some way. If it had been there, it would have felt wrong, right? Because the character that he is, that's just never going to happen. But I, I feel like she deserved that. She deserved that acknowledgement of the injustice that had been done to her. It will never come because the gods will never see it as an injustice. But it would have been nice for the character to have it. As unrealistic as it is, and if it had happened, I would have complained about it. I think this is the best ending that could have been or that could have been realistically written but as a character she definitely deserved better from her family but as we know in mythology there's almost zero level of regret or accountability because when she was like happen. bye they were probably like good riddance goodbye we don't need to hear from you ever again and like probably never thought of her i mean even the reaction from her father right when she demands to see him and then he like poof appears and you're like okay why didn't he do that earlier like she could have just demanded this earlier but apparently she waited until now but the fact that like his reaction was like i think it's because she still has the the stingray god spear and i, I could keep calling him the stingray god because i can't remember his name but the fact that she got that when everyone else has failed means that she's notable that's, I think that is really the only reason that he paid any attention to her. But don't you end. think they would have had the direct line of like, if she called out to the gods, he would hear her anyway? Oh, yeah. No, I think he would have heard her. I don't think he would have come. Oh, you just think he would have ignored her. But now that she has the spear, he's like, well, I guess I can't ignore her. I'll just go see what the hell she wants. Oh, maybe. I. Yeah. Well, either way, when he finally deigns to respond to his daughter's plea... Yeah, I mean, you see it in the reaction, right? It's very much like, 
I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. Oh, you're threatening me? Okay, I'll do it. But this is the last thing I'll ever do for you. I will not care. I will not see. Like, just that whole thing. I was like, oh, yeah, y'all really? Okay. That felt icky. But then again, the gods' rules have never been fair, right? Even when someone was not desperate to get away, per se, if something happens uh, and you either lose your divinity or you get defeated, there really is this, like, clubby rejection. And when I am thinking about this kind of idea of, like, rejection, right, the thing that comes to mind is... Strangely enough, it comes from Rick Riordan's Percy Jackson books. But again, it's because it's like a trope we've seen over and over. It's like the myth with the Garden of the Hesperides, right? Guarding the, the tree with the golden apples and the dragon. One of the Hesperides like does not want to be there. And she's like, I want to leave. And then they're all like, okay, well, if you leave, you're out of the club permanently forever. The dragon will attack you. He will not care that you were once good friends so it's that idea thank you it's that idea that stays with me though it's it's that idea that that really resonates right it's just the entire olympus everything is a club divinity is a club if you're in you're in you're out you're out and in a world where everything and everyone is so wishy-washy it's uh, i don't know a bit jarring yeah is an interesting difference to, I think, a lot of how life is as we experience it. Also, I mean, maybe it's because we're mortals, but like, as a speaking as a mortal and not an immortal, it, to me, it almost feels like there's nothing in life that's truly in, you're in, out, you're out, right? Like, I know there's a lot of things that are like, no, yes, you can have access, you can have access, but we have so many, like, exceptions, right? If I show up to, like, fancy-ass, fanciest, richest club in Chicago, and I'm like, hi, let me in, they'd be like, ah, no, goodbye, you're not a club member. But again, being immortal, there's always a caveat. I, like, offer them some money, right? Like, huge money, and then they're suddenly like, oh, okay. Sure. That doesn't work in, in, in Greek myth, right? In, in Godland, really. I don't know where I'm going with this, but this book made me have a lot of thoughts. A lot of weird, stray thoughts. And for whatever reason, this book, maybe because of how it's written, because of the themes in it, it really got me thinking about a lot of contemporary, the contemporary side of things. I don't know. Did that happen to you? Or do you, or do you just put it, try to put it in the context of, like... Not so much. I just enjoy the the story and the relationships that are built between the characters. So for you, it was definitely just much more like engaged with the story, but it's just that like not so many modern themes coming up. Mm -hmm. Yep. And we have so we've got about five minutes left before we need to wrap up. But I wanted to ask briefly, what did you think about the relationship between Penelope and Cersei? I was shocked initially. But I really liked it because you are bonded by this shitty, shitty man who was paranoid and shitty and just, as we've said, he's problematic anyway. So in a world of Greek mythology where the women are all kind of lumped together 
because the rest of the world and men are unforgiving it it kind of falls in line with like the other stuff we've been reading right where it's like all the women have to band together because that's all they'll have so i kind of liked how well <laughs> we shouldn't have to be this way but i do like the solidarity of we've both had different types of trauma right one is i've been waiting for my husband for 20 years and then he came back and he's weird and crazy and the other is like i caught him on the way back but then i've been traumatized because he left me they have some strange parallels but i i really liked how because these are two women who would have the most purpose and reason to hate each other but we've seen that in everything in any kind of media we pit woman against woman because they fought over the same man or some shit like that right so to not see this tired trope of pit the women against each other i love it i i absolutely love it what about you i really enjoyed it i felt that there was like a level of mutual respect in there and there was no blame on Penelope's part either. There was like a very mild hint of jealousy, but there was no blame for her for uh, in her for Cersei having held him up. She's like, it's what he does. I'm not terribly surprised. I'm not going to go and blame you. It's like when you see women get so angry at the other woman that their spouse, their boyfriend has cheated on them with. Like, no, actually, there may be some wrongdoing there, but the person you should be angry at is is the person you're in a relationship with who broke your trust. So seeing that like lack of animosity was really pleasant. And then, yeah, the mutual respect and the fact that Penelope ends up taking over Cersei's place on the island. She becomes the island witch and stays there with the amazing loom that Daedalus built and teaches herself witchcraft. And then in this like flash forward premonition thing, Cersei describes how they go and live on the island for a time. And they, she and Telemachus have two daughters and they visit with Penelope and it is comfortable and pleasant and like a friendship. I think that's something that Cersei does not have at all in the book until Penelope arrives right at the very end. And you see hints of her hoping for it, like with Medea, when Medea comes, she's like, oh, maybe she can stay and, and have a friend. And then when the nymphs show up, she starts to think maybe maybe this is someone I can be a friend to. And, and then she, before she even says anything, she catches herself and realizes this will absolutely not work. I will be scorned. And then finally, right at the end, she she has a friend. I but it also relies on the it. type of Penelope that you have either written yourself or that is or the interpretation of her that you choose to work off of, right? Because like there's certain Penelopes and certain adaptations that we've seen, right? Who's like like um let's see, when we watch the Kirk Douglas Ulysses, right. The the interpretation we had of her there is like this very weepy, I miss Odysseus, or Ulysses, where's my husband? I'm waiting for you and I miss you and you need to come protect me and all this stuff. And like, okay, if I saw that version of her, I'd be like, there's such a big disconnect because this is not her. This ain't it. Reading or listening to this, I thought to myself, this is the perfect ending. Like this is the epilogue and what would have happened 
to Natalie Haynes' version of Penelope because you saw them sassy letters in A Thousand Ships and you see her Absolutely. getting mad. Her longing for her husband to return is not the Sylviana Magana, where is he? But it's like the, I'm just pissed with you so you better freaking come back because I we're gonna have words. And if you don't come back, well then fuck you too. Right? So like it depends on what kind of Penelope you have so so I really like this because I could easily imagine like going from Natalie Haynes's Penelope during the Iliad to this being like her natural next step I found it really quite funny how this does actually rely quite heavily on what version of her you perceive her to be whether you're told she's just the dedicated wife who just all she does in her life is long for the husband to return and she has no personality beyond that or she's actually someone who's incredibly amazing and i think it'll be interesting as we go through the second half of the season to see the different directions that people take Penelope in, in the same way that seeing the different Helens and the different Parises was really interesting. In, in I the think first I half. just will like her more. Every different Penelope we see brings a new dimension and not in the tired, I don't know. There's only so many Paris and Helens I could take before I'm just like, ugh, ugh, still don't like you, still unrelatable. You go from, I feel for them, it's like a scale of deep, deep-seated I hate you to like, still don't like you but okay fine you're like better for penelope i feel like it's like yes girl yes girl get angry get mad don't even want him home take back your life female empowerment too okay i get it sad sad she's like the ultimate sad girl in some of them right so you're like oh so i don't know i just find penelope more interesting yeah. all around than paris or helen could ever be you're not alone in that. I think it's going to be fun. Well, we are about at the hour mark. Is there anything that you wanted to add before we log, before we signed off? No, other than I really enjoy the style of writing. I think it's brilliant. I think it's bold. I think ostensibly basing something on one very famous work, but then drawing from a lot of other mythological sources and layering in the background in a way that's well done. I enjoy, you know, we've seen it work out very, really well like this and Song of Achilles. And then we've seen it turn out not so well, like Helen of Troy. Yeah, so all I want to say is I enjoyed this. I hope that Madeline Miller writes more, 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 more. And I guess I will leave you with a final question of if we were to see another book, what sort of underrated figure from mythology would you want to see her take on and write a book about? Medea, actually, I would like I would like a Medea novel or Medusa. I know Natalie Haynes has Stone Blind out now, which I desperately need to read. But I would like to see Madeline Miller take yeah, on either. Yeah, I think of those. I would agree. Although I I will add, I want to see Ariadne. Yes, yeah. So that anyway, that's what we think. Let us know, you know, reach out to us, ping us on socials. Let us know what you think and uh, we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Okay.
Hey, thanks for listening. Don't forget to leave us a review. And you can also follow us on social media at The Reading Party Podcast. If you'd like to leave us a book or movie suggestion, then email us at thereadingpartypod at gmail.com. See you next week. Thank you.